Welcome to the What Matters Today podcast from the Graduate Institute. I'm Dan Graham, Head of Communications at the Graduate Institute. In this podcast series, we ask members of our faculty to comment on key global issues. How will COVID-19 impact cities moving forward? This is the topic of our 11th episode, featuring Dennis Rogers, Research Professor in Anthropology and Sociology at the Graduate Institute. Prior to joining the Institute in 2018, Professor Rogers held appointments at the Universities of Amsterdam, Glasgow, Manchester, and the London School of Economics and Political Science. His research focuses on issues relating to the dynamics of conflict and violence in cities in Latin America and South Asia, and he is the principal investigator of the European Research Council-funded project Gangs, Gangsters, and Ganglands towards a global comparative ethnography. Cities seem to have been the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. Why is this? Well, you could say that there's a widespread assumption that this might have to do with demographic density. New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, for example, tweeted at the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020 that there is a density level in New York City that is destructive. I mean, at one level, this makes intuitive sense. You know, busy sidewalks, busy buildings, busy public spaces make physical distancing difficult, which increases the risk of contagion. And it's a kind of critique which goes back to the late 19th century when American civic leaders, for example, argued that disease and poverty, particularly in kind of tenement apartment blocks or downtown kind of inner city slums, stem from crowded and unsanitary conditions in dense cities. But as this critique actually suggests, in many ways, the problem is not urban or high population density per se. It's kind of the disparities between good quality urban infrastructural and service provision, whether public and private, and population density on the other hand. It's not so much how many people live in a certain area that matters, but the conditions they live in, you could say. And at the same time, though, this imbalance is not the natural order of things, but the product of very active political choices and historical class, racial and gender inequalities that increase rates of poverty and poor health. And this is something that research by architect Dipti Adlaka and public health specialist James Salis have shown uh, or has shown in their research. So there's almost no association, no correlation between the density of the 36 what they call biggest world cities as measured in terms of people per square kilometer and rates of COVID-19 cases and deaths. Rather, what they find is that the key factor to understand why cities such as Hong Kong, Tokyo or Seoul, which are very dense megacities, successfully brought COVID-19 under control was their swift and very consistent introduction of public health actions such as testing, contact tracing, isolation and quarantine in a very timely manner which they combined with physical distancing and mask-wearing injunctions. So in some ways, this was very much an issue of good governance um, more than anything else. At the same time, there's one other issue which I think is important to think about when we think about why cities might be linked in some way to COVID-19. It's, once again, it's less to do with cities as places, say, dense, uh, places of dense, uh, demographic density, but more with the fact that we live currently in an era of planetary urbanism, where the urban is a space, is a flow, it's a space, it connects different places. This has very much fundamentally changed 
the globe and the way we live today, uh, it's not so much that the world has got a more urban population than rural population, but the urban is more than just a place. It's a worldwide condition in which all political, economic, and socio-environmental relations come together, regardless of location and morphology. So what is now the urban is not just, say, Kyoto and Cape Town and London, but actually the shipping routes along those places, as well as other parts of which are not traditionally considered urban, but have resources which are then processed in cities, which are then transported between cities. It's a kind of integrated process of global urbanization, you could say. And it's something that you've seen, you know, in the paradoxical fact that many of the early COVID-19 clusters emerge in areas that we might actually identify as peri-urban rather than urban. They weren't necessarily dense. Although Wuhan is considered the putative ground zero of the pandemic, the disease actually originated in rural areas and was brought to the city because of particular food market demands. And the first European COVID-19 clusters were in the Valseriana, northeast of Bergamo, or Starnberg, a municipality of 20,000 inhabitants, about 30 kilometers from Munich, or Ischigl, a town of 1,600 inhabitants in the Alps. But the Valseriana is a site of textile manufacturing with very intense links to China. And so there was a constant flow between those two areas. Starnberg is connected to the rest of the world through a major automobile park manufacturing plant. And Ichigal is a popular ski resort where people come and mingle as such. So it's interconnections rather than cities per se that actually kind of, uh, I think, are uh, to be linked into the spread of COVID-19. The pandemic seems to have impacted cities in some developing countries particularly hard, to the extent that according to the World Economic Forum, some cities have experienced a reverse migration of urban dwellers back to rural areas due to economic shutdowns, job losses, and the lack of livelihoods for migrants. Do you think this is a trend that will endure? And if so, how can afflicted cities reverse it? Well, the, um, the very blunt answer or explanation for this is that cities in the global south are often much poorer than those in the global north and the populations within those cities are often very much poorer they're often living hand to, hand to mouth and when you have very few opportunities to engage in economic activity to kind of actually make a living then you have to kind of fall back on things like family relations on going back home so to speak where you have kind of non-material support networks I mean, this is something I actually have been able to examine a little bit, or I've been able to observe rather in the co context of my own research on drug dealers, um, low-level drug dealers, both in South Africa and Nicaragua, who following the spread of the pandemic saw their economic livelihoods collapse and saw the kind of clients no longer coming to onto the streets to buy and fear of the pandemic meant that they kind of couldn't actually uh, engage with people very easily on the street. And of course, also supply lines also collapsed. In this kind of, even, so even drug dealers here were being affected by this. And some of them actually moved back to the countryside, even though there were several generations past the kind of previous, uh, the family members who'd moved from rural areas. And one of the things, obviously, that poverty and so on um, uh, explains often urban rural migration, but poverty also explains the other way around. Now, one of the things which is interesting here is also there has been a rural exodus to a certain extent in northern cities, but it's been quite different. And there was a lot of debate at one point um, about the 
the rich fleeing to secondary residences uh, in France, for example, or in Switzerland, going to their chalets and so on. And um, there's also been talk about the way the pandemic has put pressure on countryside. And one of the great advantages of living in Geneva is that it's very easy to get out into the countryside. You can take a bus or you can actually literally almost walk out beyond the city limits. Um, but it has meant there's been a much more intensive use of the local countryside and there's been much greater littering um, and there's been a very negative impact on local fauna that has been noted over the past year. Now, one of the interesting things that uh, we could speculate, I mean, I don't think we're going to see a process of de-urbanization occurring anytime soon. But if we do see, for example, over the next few years, a succession of safe periods and outbreaks of COVID-19, what this might result in is perhaps patterns of seasonal migration from the city to its peripheries or to rural areas where closely interacting with others might not be the norm. But I think, and this is where the kind of talking about the example in the North is important. I think this is something which is going to be very much limited to those with the financial means to leaving the city. And it would become a very desperate measure for the kind of poorer to actually leave the city. They would perhaps will do so less seasonally, but actually more permanently. Great. Thank you for that. And so the next question is, many cities are experiencing better air quality and clearer skies following lockdowns. How can cities return to normal without sacrificing some of these positive impacts on the environment? I mean, I think we've all noted um, ourselves just by virtue of walking or perhaps cycling around the city, the way in which, uh, yes, city environments have become much kind of cleaner. And um, certainly one of the most noticeable things in Geneva has been the um, collapse of uh, airplane traffic and so noticeably lower noise pollution. Um, although, you know, you could perhaps balance that, that there might be less noise pollution outside, but uh, I think we've all become much more sensitive to noise pollution inside our own homes. There is some research which is a bit skeptical about the extent to which better air quality uh, in cities is a real thing. Some people have said that it's a very temporary thing. Some people have said it's uh, perhaps been overemphasized. I think I'm very skeptical that these are kind of changes which will last. They do imply fundamental changes in lifestyle if they if they were to kind of endure. For example, you know, planes, the lower number of planes is obviously linked to the fact that we are traveling much less. But if you think back to the last great pandemic, the 1918-21 influenza pandemic, uh, this was actually followed by what you could probably say was the first wave of mass of mass travel, certainly within Europe. I mean, the passport system, which prior to World War One was not really, passports weren't really a big thing. You could still cross borders without passports. The war brought in the kind of uh, institutionalized passport system, but it was expected to be rather temporary. And it's actually the pandemic which institutionalized the passport system. Now, on the one hand, it might seem that the passports, initially the passport system was seen as something that limited free travel, but it also effectively uh, institutionalized travel. And we also saw in a few years after the after 1921, in the 19- early 1930s, the first paid holidays and the beginning of mass working class tourism, often within countries, but still uh, the development of this habit that we would always have one or two holidays a year. So in that sense, I'm not really completely persuaded that the pandemic will have a big change at that level. The same thing with cars, for example. I mean, it was very noticeable the way that in cities, traffic reduced significantly, particularly with lockdown. Um, But they also 
cars came back very fast once strict lockdowns were rescinded. Um, in fact, they were, and it may have been a function. Uh, it may have been an impression because we had a period without cars. But one of the things which does seem to have happened is that there does seem to have been a little spike of increased use of cars due to the pandemic, as people sought to avoid public transport when travel was uh, enabled and stay within the individualized bubble of the car. So to me, it's really unclear to what extent these are really significant changes. And much more importantly, in terms of cities, I think, if we're thinking of a broader picture about how these are perhaps symptoms of a way of living in an environmentally more friendly manner, one which tackles um, the challenge of climate change. Perhaps much more important than these kind of issues are things like cities' consumption emissions. And when we think about cars, we think about flights, where, or you know, the electricity consumed within a city. These are kind of um, direct emissions of urban areas, but the bulk of urban emissions are from things that cities consume, which are made elsewhere, which are then transported into the city. And here we perhaps then need to think in a very, very different way, but one which is very complicated. I mean, if we start thinking about the need to have more perhaps a local food system or local production systems, but that would imply a wholesale reorganization of our currently very globalized economic systems. And of course, we talk a lot about the health aspects of COVID-19, but COVID-19 has, of course, caused a lot of economic chaos. And cities around the world are not unnaturally very keen to try and reboot the economy to save jobs and livelihoods. And the message has uniformly been the same. It's get back to consumption to help the economy. But the problem, of course, is consumption is intrinsically linked to climate change. Now, one other issue, of course, that we need to take into account here um, is that the challenge of consumption-based emissions or, of course, the challenge of uh, less travel time is intrinsically tied to inequality. The richest 10% of the global population are responsible for more than half of all, kind of all types of um, consumption emissions, whether it's direct ones or indirect ones. And so we obviously need some rather targeted policies to explicitly tackle these disparities. Now, the, the one thing which I think COVID-19 has put on the table, or at least kind of revealed, which is potentially of interest, is that it's proven that rapid and radical changes to legislation, organizations, and ways of living are possible in the face of crisis. And perhaps the most important thing we need to try and ensure endures is that this kind of sense of emergency and the need for collective action in the face of emergency associated with the pandemic can be transferred to the great existential threats of the 21st century, which are climate change and inequality, to ensure that they warrant as radical a response. Right. Um, very interesting. And so many articles written about the impact of COVID-19 on cities have highlighted that the pandemic has potentially provided city planners with an opportunity to rethink our cities and urban planning in general. So how so? Well, I think the first thing to note is that, you know, there is a very long relationship um, between epidemics and urban planning. If you actually, I mean, even you go back to some of the writings of Greek philosophers, for example, um, who talk about the Agora as a space um, of circulation and uh, interaction in the open air in order to kind of uh, reduce the kind of bad air circulation, which was what was being blamed for 
disease at the time. The same thing if you look at the some of the writings around the founding of um, Fatipur Sikri, Akbar's ideal city um, built in the late 15th century. This was purposely built according to sort of rules of hygiene um, and clearly separating, for example, clean water and sewerage, something which um, Paris and London did in the 19th century, which uh, they did in response explicitly to uh, epidemics in London in particular in response to cholera outbreaks. And, you know, even at the beginning of the last century, public parks became very popular in the U.S., explicitly as a way of offering citizens spaces with cleaner air to protect them from diseases such as tuberculosis. So I think there's health issues have always been at the heart of a lot of urban planning. To me, I think there's three or four things which you could say that the pandemic has brought to the fore, which are perhaps very interesting to think about going forward in a hopefully post-pandemic world. The first is the kind of development of perhaps a notion of emergency urbanism and the way that COVID-19 has spawned the temporary use of spaces or temporary reorganization of spaces uh, in response to the crisis. And one example is the way in which London Excel Conference Centre was reorganized as a kind of emergency hospital, the Nightingale Hospital. And it's one of multiple examples around the world of temporary hospitals being set up in other in buildings which were not necessarily made for that purpose. Um, we've also seen in a lot of particularly American cities, street closures, which have been used to deter car use and increase space for pedestrians, for example. I think that's something which um, the kind of idea that spaces aren't just for one use only and that we can multiply their uses perhaps at different points in time is something that comes out of the pandemic crisis. Another one, I think, is this notion that of a, a greater sense of local living. I mean, a lot of cities have neighborhood plans, try and promote urban villages and so on. But I think we are seeing increasingly, um, and this is something which has perhaps affected suburbia more than, than cities itself, suburbs have become kind of quite isolated, alienated spaces. And with lockdowns, where you're limited in how far you can go, the suburbs do not offer all the services that a city might. And perhaps we should need to be thinking more in terms of miniature towns within cities and kind of less than kind of perhaps having people living in the suburbs and moving back or moving on a regular basis into the city centre. So more decentered cities, you could say. I think another issue is the, that's come to the fore is increasing participation and engagement of people within cities. A lot of the anti-pandemic measures have relied on responsibilizing people and making them feel a collective responsibility. And I think this is something which you could also think more broadly in terms of taking responsibility for your urban environment and for your kind of space and not just governing it, but also deciding how to kind of what it should be and what should it, what should it be used for. And it would also be an interesting way perhaps to counter the solitude and alienation that many people have felt as a result of the pandemic. I think the final area is perhaps that COVID-19 has definitely made the case for more green urban planning much more compelling and green in two ways. One is green in a kind of environmental kind of, we need to also tackle climate change element, but also the fact that cities 
should not just be concrete, uh, but they need green spaces. We need to we or we need to also kind of greenify and make the environments in which we live spaces that we are comfortable in that we find which are kind of perhaps biophiliac, you could say. And I think uh, it's something which has been very which has been very much linked to inequality, where we've seen that you know green initiatives must work for all socioeconomic groups, um, and actually in cities such as London, in particular. For example, we've seen that low-income neighborhoods are those with the least access to green space. And there have been calls to actually kind of uh, reorganize the space along the lines that Barcelona has been doing for the last few years, but trying to ensure that nobody can live in a city with less than 200 meters away from a significant green space. But uh, we have to be careful with this because a particular potential negative impact of green zones could be that it leads to high demands for housings, which leads to subsequent rises in property prices, which can lead to gentrification and displacement of local residents and businesses. So there's kind of a trade-off here, trying to make sure that homes remain affordable and that urban green zones don't just become rich enclaves, I suppose. Right. And and digitalization and e-governance solutions seem to have helped certain cities respond better to the pandemic. Has COVID-19 helped accelerate smart city development? And is this a good thing? I suppose the jury is probably out on this one, um, on both counts, actually. I could, I would imagine that, yes, I mean, certain, I know that there have been certain link-ups between Spark City initiatives and COVID tracking apps and so on, particularly in, in East Asia. And I suppose one of the broader elements has been is that COVID-19 and the way that a lot of our understanding about the pandemic has been driven by technology and particularly um, the collection of, of big data will inevitably promote more smart city type measures. On the other hand, I think, you know, we have to be very careful with this at several different levels. I mean, health-driven urban planning issues, for example, um, can often be implemented for very political or sectarian motives. There was, um, I mean, a famous example is in the outbreak of the bubonic plague in Cape Town at the turn of the 20th century, which was actually blamed on poor Africans by the colonial governor and government and the white settler community, and was used as an excuse to impose forced segregation. So very much in the name of sanitation, the first urban native location was constructed outside the main city where its population became very easy to control. And I think there are kind of control issues to kind of uh, to take into account about, uh, I mean, smart cities have always kind of been quite controversial. So smart city initiatives have been controversial in the way that there is a big brother element to them. There's potential political surveillance and control. And we know that certain governments have, you know, been very quickly implementing the use of mobile phone apps for COVID-19 contact tra- tracing. And it's, there is a kind of, there does tend to be a little bit of a correlation between kind of more authoritarian governments and who have pushed those very, very, very much, such as in Singapore, for example, or, or even South Korea. Um, and then the other element, I guess, is to think about here is whether some of the things that have been occurring around digitalization and e-governance solutions and COVID-19 haven't been cutting corners a little bit. There's been a proliferation of different types of apps, for example. At one point, the British were working on two different ones. The EU had a different one, but within the EU, there were multiple countries that had different ones and so on. And the, there's been a kind of perhaps also a lack of testing. I mean, most, most new initiatives take a lot. Uh, we, we need to test them quite 
carefully. And one of the dangers here is seeing digitalization or ever greater digitalization as a panacea, because one of the, this brings us closer to kind of artificial intelligence, um, and that has a lot of ethical debates about what happens um, with artificial intelligence, particularly who takes the decisions when the decision making is based on algorithms rather than kind of real people. What happens in terms of people's rights? Does it undermine their rights? Does it undermine rights of appeal as well? Right. Fascinating. And, and the last question is, do you think that COVID-19 will fundamentally change the way we live in cities in the future? I think, well, once again, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I've been doing a little bit of research, not very, I have to admit, I haven't been doing it very systematically, but into trying to look at how past pandemics have changed um, social uh, organization and um, and uh, political economy of society or societies more generally. The only pandemic I can find that has, that really significantly changed society was the Black Death, the bubonic plague in the 14th century. And that effectively killed a third of the population of Europe and started the end of the feudal system. Um, but, you know, when you compare it with, say, the great smallpox epidemics that devastated the Roman Empire, including, for example, the Justinian Plague in, um, in the 6th century AD, which uh, reputedly killed one in five people, that didn't bring down the Roman Empire. It didn't. Uh, in fact, it was more a trigger of a renaissance under Justinian of um, when the Roman Empire, which had been a little bit in retreat, kind of suddenly um, came back to the fore. So it's a very kind of it's a it's a difficult question. I think we'll see. I mean, as with most changes, it will be it will be perhaps mostly linked to what serves those with power, whether economic or political power. Um, I mean, I can certainly imagine certain workplace changes. I mean, the spread of the institutionalization of, uh, of teleworking to a much greater extent than it was before, less because it's convenient and more because it's cost-saving for many enterprises which might no longer have to have expensive headquarters in the center of cities, for example. I also think that we might also see other kind of um, changes to the city. I mean, one of the things that one of the things that have been very interesting and with um, the pandemic is the way that it's revealed how dependent we are on secondary contacts. One of the things about cities is cities are often portrayed as spaces of secondary contact. I mean, if you live. The caricature is that if you live in the countryside, in the village, in the village you know everybody, you have family, so you have these kind of quite intense relations which develop on multiple layers, you know, as a family member, as somebody you work with, uh, and so on and so forth. Whilst in cities, we have a lot of contact with people on a very fleeting basis. We might, the person who mans the uh, newspaper uh, shop that we go and pick up a, new, a magazine every once a week, or the supermarket teller, or even seeing somebody that you don't know um, when sitting on the same bench, um, we say hello, and we've lost that. And I think there's a sense of it has that has changed our sense of who we are and what public space is particularly. Because at one level, public spaces have always been perceived as places of engagement with other people. Um, but I think the pandemic has kind of slightly involuted this. It's made, first of all, public space at most a space of passive engagement. So we 
tend to no longer really engage directly with people. But also, it's, we kind of now see public space as somewhere where we can go as individuals and have space around us. Whilst perhaps in the past, public space was about going somewhere and having people around us. So I think perhaps that will be one of the things which may change the way we live in cities. We may have a slightly different notion of, of spatiality, both within public and private space as well. Because, for example, already we make decisions about who we might admit in our homes and how. And I think we might see less, perhaps less gregarious habits or perhaps smaller intimate friend circles. Now, beyond that, I think, though, there, there are some other things which we can hope uh, will change fundamentally as a result of COVID-19. I think two things in particular is the way that COVID-19 has fundamentally and very starkly revealed the enduring gender inequalities within societies all over the planet, but particularly within homes as well. And in the global north, where we've seen particularly with homeworking, the unequal kind of burden on men and women in most households here. And I think that perhaps we might start seeing a little bit more kind of a renewed interest in tackling gender inequality, which I think at some level, some some people and some governments thought, well, we've moved almost in the right direction now. And I think it's, an it's, it's not a kind of question of we've made it, it's an enduring, enduring struggle. And I think the same is also true at the level of, of, of racism. Racial inequality is another fault line which has been uh, starkly revealed by the COVID-19 um, pandemic. And it's one which very much intersects with urban inequality, because we know that in cities around the world, all over the world, some of the greatest kind of correlations between low income um, or low income correlates with race uh, and racial minority. And so we can see here that inequality remains one of the greatest things that needs to be tackled in the face of COVID-19 in terms of changing the ways our cities will be in the future. Great, Dennis. This was very interesting. Thank you so much for participating in this episode. Great. Well, thank you very much. That was Professor Dennis Rogers discussing the impact of COVID-19 on cities. This podcast series is produced by the Graduate Institute Communications Team. For more information about the Graduate Institute, please visit our website at graduateinstitute.ch. I'm Dan Graham. Thanks for listening.